Middletown, Ohio. My wife was born in Middletown, Ohio. I was born in Dayton, Ohio. And I was asked to go back and preach at my wife's home church this summer. And so they did this event where they would gather and go out and serve all throughout the community. They did all these amazing things. They were building porches and patios and wheelchair ramps and all over the community. I think they had something like 35 different projects going on throughout the day where the church would serve throughout the day and their students were serving. And then they'd come together and they'd worship and and they asked me to come and preach. And so it was the first time in many, many years that I had been back to Middletown, Ohio. Now, Middletown, Ohio is affectionately called Middle Tucky uh, in, uh, in Ohio. It is called Middletown because it sits right in between Dayton and Cincinnati. It's an incredibly creative name. Uh, It's a factory town, and the factories are gone. Um, And so it's this interesting kind of community that my wife grew up in, and 23 years ago, we were doing the math, 23 years ago, I was a junior in college, and they called and asked if I would come and be their summer intern. Uh, and uh, I, I was, I don't know how old I was. I was not very old. Uh, they paid me like $12 for the entire summer because churches can get away with breaking every labor law uh, imaginable for some reason. Some of you have worked at church camp, you understand, right? Uh, so I went and I, I spent the whole summer. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment, but it wasn't really a one-bedroom apartment. It was more like a one-room apartment. Um, I'm not kidding. It was probably the size of this rug, maybe a little more. Uh, the bed was in the wall, right? So I had to pull the bed out of the wall, and in order to get in my bed, I had to push the couch against the wall. Uh, It was awesome. Um, There was a woman who had lived there before me who had smoked 10,000 cigarettes a day. Um, So everywhere I went, I smelled like smoke. All of my clothes smelled like smoke. Um, It was this crazy kind of summer where um, we took a trip to the Grand Canyon with a bunch of kids. So it was like 35 students in. We drove in a van that had no air conditioning. Um, Whoever planned that trip, I cursed them more than I've ever cursed any human in my life. It was this awful, awful summer, but there was one silver lining in the summer. I met my wife. Uh, Now listen, listen, she was still in high school. You got to watch out for the interns, right? And there's a policy, there was a policy, which I I affirm this policy, uh, Kayla and Jake. I affirm this policy, which was like, the interns cannot date high schoolers. Um, And so we did not date while I was there. We did not go out. But I can tell you, I noticed her. I saw her. Uh, She saw me. Uh, And then what happened was the next year, she decided to go to my college, Anderson University, uh, and she, some through like these random experiences, met my sister, and they decided to room together. And so she shows up at college. I was a senior. I lived off campus. Like if you go to a Christian college, off campus housing is the thing. Are you with me? How many Christian college people right? I see your conservative roots, right? Because in the dorms, you're not allowed to touch each other. In the dorms, like the girls have to leave at 7.30, right? In the dorms, you're not allowed to like eat meatloaf. Like I I don't know what, there's all these like Leviticus rules in the dorms that you have to follow. But when you're off campus, right? (laughs) Stuff can happen. You're allowed to actually talk to another human being. You can touch each other and like the, like, in a healthy way, right? Good things can happen, right? You're allowed, to, you're allowed to do all that stuff. And so we lived off campus, which became the place where Sarah and my sister would come and hang out. We had like 10 guys living in a house. It was a train wreck. The house was worse than my one bedroom bed pulled out of the wall kind of thing. Um, but they started coming and hanging out. And every week, Sarah would be there and, and my sister would be there. And eventually, I just didn't want my sister around. And so I would say things to her like, hey, Leah, don't you have to go do some laundry? Like I was trying to get rid of her so that I could be with Sarah. And my sister got none of the hints. She, she was always like, no, I don't have to do laundry. And if I did, I'd just do it here. Like why, like, why would I go somewhere to do She didn't help me out in one bit at all. And so finally, it was Christmas break of Sarah's freshman year, my senior year, and uh, we were both going home for Christmas break and we were talking and we were like, what are you doing over Christmas break? And she said, 
I don't know, I'm just gonna sit with my parents in Middletown. And I was like, that sounds terrible. I'm just gonna sit with my parents in Dayton. And she said, that sounds terrible. And I said, why don't we go out? So listen, there are all kinds of miracles in the Bible. There are like... (laughs) Christian history is full of God showing up in miraculous ways and doing things that nobody expected could happen. Um, My first date with Sarah, this is what we decided to do. It was Christmas break, um, and it's a miracle that I got a second date. Like, did anybody else feel like I have no idea how I married my spouse. The second date was just miraculous. Like the fact that, yeah, I I feel like that every day. And so uh, this is what I decided. At that time, there was a famous, which may be a guilty pleasure movie for some of you out there, um, which I think would be, if, like, if, if I look back through movies, this may be the worst first date movie in the history of the world. But it was the first movie ever, ever to gross a billion dollars at the box office. And it's the movie that makes every idiot in the world walk to a front of a boat and do this. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Titanic. Titanic was the hit movie. And for some reason, in my head, I thought, you know what would be a fun first date movie? Let's go watch a seven-hour movie where a boat sinks and everyone dies. That's going to start a good dinner conversation afterwards. So we met at the Dayton Mall. I don't even think I picked her up. We met at the Dayton Mall, which uh, I want you to imagine what you imagine the Dayton Mall as. Everybody got it in your head? I promise you it's worse. Right? I promise you it's worse than what you imagine. We met at the Dayton Mall. We went and watched the movie Titanic. We went out to eat at Max and Irma's uh, because they had burgers and they had free refills, which was a big deal at that time, right? Not every restaurant had free de- refills. You guys live in an amazing world these days, right? Like, uh, and, and then uh, what I knew we had to do something fun. So what we did after the movie was we went and we played laser tag at the Dayton Mall. And Sarah Hardman was like, I want to go out with that guy again. (laughs) It was a miracle. It was amazing. So I was at this church this summer. I was thinking about our first date. I was thinking about this place. And I I started thinking about that movie, The Titanic. Um, And here's the thing about that movie. It, It showed this dramatic and crash contrast between what was happening on the upper deck of the ship and what was happening beneath the surface of the ship. Right on the top deck, everything was extravagant. Everything was beautiful. Like it, they were eating on immaculate tables in incredible dining halls. Everything was fresh and clean and pristine. It was the most beautiful cruise liner that had ever been created. And there was this extravagant wealth, extravagant privilege, extravagant. Everything looked like everything was beautiful and perfect and working well. But as we know the story, beneath the surface, there were some things going wrong with the ship. Below the deck, there was poverty. Below the deck, there was brokenness. Below the deck, there was all kinds of things going on with the ship which caused it to hit the iceberg and and, and fall apart. And today, I want to talk about love over fear, and I want to talk about us the church getting back to a place where we don't just pay attention to the top decks of our lives, but we actually start paying attention to what's going on beneath the surface. Because I believe this without a shadow of a doubt. I believe that the church is heading for an iceberg. And if we don't begin to disciple our inner lives, pay attention to our motives and our motivations, pay attention to our fears and our wounds and our pain and our brokenness, pay attention to what triggers us and angers us and causes us to attack or to avoid. If we don't begin to become self-reflective at some level, we are heading for an iceberg. And when you hit that iceberg, whether individually or corporately, all of the that's going on beneath the surface suddenly raises up to the top. We can live in a place where we have a top deck persona and a lower deck life like the Titanic. We can trick everyone into believing that our life is perfect and clean and amazing and everything's great and everything's wonderful and beneath the surface everything can be falling apart and we're heading for an iceberg. And I want to call the church back to radical authenticity. 
I wanna call the church back to dramatic vulnerability. I wanna call the church back to a place where we say there are no perfect people allowed, so we're not gonna pretend like we're perfect. Because all of us aren't where we wanna be, but all of us are working our way towards Christ. I wanna call the church to being back in a place where we don't hide our sin and our shame and our fear and our wounds and our pain, but we share them openly with one another. We urge each other on in love. We walk beside one another. We stand in perseverance with one another as we figure out what's going on beneath the surface of our lives. I would suggest that discipleship is not discipleship until it starts to address our inner life. And let's just be honest, guys, the church, the the statistics that are coming out of the church aren't really pleasant. Over 700 victims of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church in the last two years. Stunning abuse of power and sexual sin in megachurches in Chicago. Catholic priests raping nuns and the ongoing abuse of children. Financial mishandling and mismanagement of some of the largest Christian institutions around. Cultures of abuse and intimidation and cultures where the abusers are believed and protected and the abusers are cast aside and rejected. And if we don't start paying attention to the bottom deck of our lives, these issues with power, these issues with misunderstanding the kingdom of God, these issues with fear and attacking and avoiding are just going to increase as we keep going. We are heading, I believe without, without a doubt, we are heading for a cultural moment and the church needs to choose, are we going to declare the kingdom of God and stand up for who he is or are we going to continue to choose political parties and fight with one another? And before we get kind of dismayed and frustrated and start to virtue signal and say, those things could never happen here, Right? That thing would never happen at Grace. That would never happen at my church. That would never happen in a community that I'm a part of. Today, I wanna spend some time talking about Judas Iscariot. And I want us to clearly understand this. If this can happen to one of Jesus' 12, it can happen anywhere. If fear can derail the life of one of Jesus' disciples, it can derail the life of any of us. If abuse of power and stealing and misunderstanding the kingdom of God can happen to one of Jesus' inner circle, then it could happen anywhere. And the stories are sobering, the statistics are depressing, uh, the news stories that come out become more and more frustrating because every time we hear another story about the abuse of power or fear overwhelming a community or causing a congregation or a leader or a person to fall or act a certain way, the witness of the church is consistently maligned, the power of the church is pervasively compromised, and the character of the church is perpetually questioned. And if we don't begin to pay attention, I think we're heading for an iceberg. Uh, what we've done, and I want to just really quickly, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I already know I'm going long today, so just get, get in. I'm, I'm excited about this. I, I'm, I haven't preached for y'all for a while, so we're going for it. We're moving to two services in a little while. I can't preach long when that happens, so I'm going to get it in now. Are we good with that? Um, I, I, uh, I want to give a quick, like, kind of, here's a church history kind of thing. So, so around 150 to 200 years ago, what happened was the church began to ask the question, how do we make disciples? And they began to ask the question of how do we do this strategically, right? What Jesus taught us to do was how to make disciples individually, Right? This is how I make disciples of my disciples and my disciples go and make disciples. What the church has always done is it's institutionalized what Jesus discovered as individual. Does that make sense? So we've institutionalized this idea of Christian education. And around 150, 200 years ago, the church decided we were going to start this thing called systematic Christian education. It's what every single one of you grew up in if you grew up in the church, Right? It is this idea that what we do is we send the kids off to their spot. We have our kindergartners, and at kindergarten, you're supposed to be able to know these five things about God. 
In third grade, you're supposed to know these 10 things about God. By eighth grade, you're supposed to know these 30 things about God. By the time that you're a senior, you're supposed to, and, and, and so on and so forth. And the church has begun age segregating our groups and, and doing this kind of systematic Christian education. It's based on the educational system that we all grew up in in schools, right? So what happened was the church kind of said, we don't know how to educate corporately. We don't know how to do this institutionally, but it seems like our school systems are doing a really good job with this, so let's do what the schools do. Let's institutionalize education. The problem with this is the school systems may not be doing as well as we think they are. In the early 90s, a group of Harvard professors got together and they started to look at the American educational system. And they started to ask questions of, do we have holes in our system? Are there gaps in how we educate? Are there problems with the way that we're training our young people? The greatest minds in the world got together to critique and imagine the educational system in America. And what they came away saying was this. The greatest danger in our educational system is the glaring lack of training in character. We have taught our kids to know the right answers, but not to become the right types of people. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing in the church. Some of you have seen this before, but I want to show it again really briefly because I think this kind of defines the top deck and the lower deck of our lives. When we think about how we're going to disciple people, what we start with is always the words of Jesus and our works. So let's start over here. We, we will start by believing that discipleship is built on our learning the word of God. Now listen, I, I love the word of God. I've been preaching the word of God for 23 years every single week, over and over and over again. I believe that as followers of Christ, we need to prepare to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. I'm a nerd with the word of God. I love systematic theology. I love reading nerdy books about what the Latin and the Hebrew and the Greek and, and all of those kinds of things. I love the word of God, but I also recognize that it's incomplete for our definition of discipleship. We cannot just hand somebody a book and say, be transformed. We, we cannot just say, I want you just to read this and, and pay attention to it, and then suddenly transformation is going to happen. In fact, even Paul had things to say about that. He said knowledge, actually, sometimes all it does is it puffs up. He said, sometimes we learn so much and we know so much that our knowledge just becomes noise. It's just the clashing of symbols and it's not actually transformation. We can kind of put on all the right material. Like I, I, I've told an illustration before about running. I'm not a runner, but, but if I wanted to become a runner, I could go and get all the gear of running, right? I could buy a book about running. I could watch movies about running. I could, pay a t I could, I could buy the short shorts that runners wear. Like I could do all of those things. And fellas, how many of you guys are runners in the, in the, just stop it with the shorts. I'm, I'm particularly speaking to the men. Like, nobody wants to see your pasty legs. Like, just buy yourself a pair of basketball shorts. You can still run just as fast. It's going to be good. John, I'm, uh, I see you disagreeing. We're going to have a talk. Sometimes, sometimes church discipline is required for these kinds of situations. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so uh, we, could, we can put on all of this stuff but it doesn't actually transform us. I could put on all the running gear, I could read all the running stuff, but that does not make me a runner. And so we've thought that the words are just going to change us, and so what we've, what we've thought is, is if I could just get the right knowledge, then I'm going to be transformed. If we could know enough, then we'll be transformed. And then we decided to go to the other side, which is not just works, not just words, but works. And it's not just knowledge, but it's our behavior. Uh, this is how I grew up. I, I've said this before, but I grew up in a church where in the youth group, I learned don't smoke or drink or chew or date the girls that do. Right? I didn't learn anything about Jesus. I didn't learn anything about grace 
or mercy or his goodness. I learned a list of rules of things I wasn't supposed to do and things I was supposed to do. People I wasn't supposed to talk to and people I was supposed to talk to. Places I was supposed to go and places I wasn't supposed to go. The greatest experience of my youth group life growing up was burning rap CDs. Anybody grew up in that era? Like It was the evil of backmasking and the evil of music and the greatest danger that faced us was us listening to our music backwards, which who, who even would do that? Like, I don't even understand. But, but this was the thing. And so we would go to these events and someone would get up there and guilt and shame us into feeling guilty about our music. And I would throw away all my rap CDs. And then three weeks later, I missed them. And I went and bought them because Christian rap was horrifyingly bad at that time. Anybody remember? It was so bad. It was, I mean, it was, go back and look at like early 90s Christian rap if you want a good laugh. Like get, it's amazing. So I would go back and then I'd buy it. But I went in this cycle of thinking if I just knew the right words and behaved the right way, I would become a disciple of Jesus. The problem with all of this is it's all top deck. It's all about pragmatism. It's all about what I do. And it never gets to the inner life of my heart. It never causes me to pay attention to what's going on beneath the surface of my life. Uh, over the summer, I, I, I don't know about parents, but I have been so grateful that school started this week. Anybody? Anybody work at home and their kids went back to school this week? Yeah, I got more done in the last two days than I got done in the last three weeks, right? Because there was not a child asking me for bologna sandwiches all day. Like, uh, I, I do video calls with, with pastors, and so every day I get on a call with like six to eight pastors and do some coaching and training with them. And, and what happens is my daughter, God love her, you guys all know Claire, she's doing a good job running our family. Um, she's really strong, um, beautiful, powerful. Um, she is the most extroverted child in the history of children. So she cannot handle being alone and not being with other people. Um, it, I'm not kidding when I say it's a problem. Um, and I might be on the other spectrum of like, I am fine not being with anybody as long as I have a book. Right? I'm good with that. And so I will be doing these video calls. I'm sitting at my desk. And have you guys seen that CNN video where the uh, children sneak in the back and the mom like, tries to like, run them out really quick? Claire has learned that if she gets on her hands and knees, she can get into my office without the camera picking her up. So she will crawl to my desk and suddenly a paper comes up like this. And this will give you some insight into Claire. It says things like this. Can I play with my friend today? Can I play with Dylan today? And the, the two choices that I'm supposed to circle is yes or never. Those are the only two options I've got. And so all the dads in the room know exactly what I circled. It's never. And I hand it back, and I'm like shoving her out of the room, pushing her out of the room, and she keeps coming back. Can I go swimming now or never? That was the, that was the options for me. So it's all of these different things. And she, so she's done it six or seven times, and eventually what happens is I'm just like, I'm, I'm done with this. And so I, I did a really good top deck thing with the pastors that I'm on a call with. I was like, would you guys excuse me for just one moment? And I turned off the video. And then I muted, and I made sure the mute button was off. Like, I double-checked, like, three times. Anybody do video calls, and you just got to make sure the mute button's off when you go to the bathroom or those kinds of things? So I, I, may, I, I know the mute button is off, and I, I turn around, and I say, Claire, I am going to ruin your life forever if you come in here again. You will never do anything with another human. I will lock you in a closet for the rest of your existence. You will never eat. You will never drink, right? No one will ever find you, right? I, I just, I went into this completely disproportionate parental response. You know what I'm talking about? Like parents, you know when you're parenting and you're acting like the child? <laughs> Here, here's what I want to suggest, guys. If my discipleship does not cause me to pay attention to that moment in my day and say, Lord, why did I parent my daughter in a way that wasn't like way, how, the way that you would have parented her? Why wasn't I patient? Why wasn't I kind? Why didn't I reveal fruits of the Spirit in that moment? If our discipleship doesn't reveal that, 
we're just doing an educational and a behavior modification program and not discipleship. Our discipleship has to cause us to pay attention to our fears, to our pain, to our triggers. It has to have me say, why did I get so angry? It has to tell me, like, why did I get triggered by that email I received this week? Why did I not like it when I got that backhanded compliment? Why did this bother me so much? Why am I replaying this conversation over and over again in my mind? Why was I short with my wife? Why was I short with my kids? Why? And it causes us to actually pay attention to our real lives. So we can do discipleship that's just above the surface where we're on some learning program and some behavior modification, some sin management program, or we can actually do what Jesus asked us to do and begin to seek our own hearts and discern whether my heart is where his is. And so I want to suggest that it's not just about the words and the works, but it's about our wants. And the church has an interesting relationship with wants because we don't know what to do with our desires. So we have two options of what we do with our desires. We do what the world does, which is whatever feels good, we do it. Whatever we want, we grab it. We name it and we claim it and we just fulfill our desires. But we jump all the way to the other side and we say, no, 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 we can't trust our desires. Like our heart is deceitful and full of sin and we can't trust our desires. So if we can't trust our desires, what we need to do is martyr ourselves to all of our desires and whatever I want, I can't trust. We have those two responses with once. And can I suggest that there's a better way? Can I suggest that there's a Jesus way? Because here's the thing. There are wants and desires in you that are holy and are good and were given to you by the Father when he created you. He created you for good works that he prepared for you in advance. And if we just reject all of it, then we're throwing out the good stuff. Like there's some of you in this room who have dreams and desires of helping the poor. We need you to have those dreams and desires. There's some of you in this room who have dreams and desires of helping orphans and widows. We need you to have those desires. There's people who have been given kingdom dreams inside of you and we can't just reject those and we also can't just pursue those willy-nilly. What we do is we surrender our wants and desires to the kingdom. We surrender our wounds in the same way. Just because I'm wounded doesn't give me the right to hurt everybody and say whatever I want to say, but it also doesn't teach me that I just reject my woundedness and pretend like I'm not wounded. I surrender my wounds to the Father and I ask him to meet me there. When I'm afraid, I don't have the right to just attack everybody because I'm afraid. I also don't just avoid every conversation because I'm afraid. I learn to surrender my fear to the Father and say, will you meet me here? And we trust that God is always present and at work and that he meets us in reality. All right, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm starting to preach. Here's what I would say. I would say that the life of Judas, Judas had a really good top deck life. He was one of Jesus' 12 he sat at the table with him. He was learning from the same curriculum that all the other disciples were learning from. He learned to say the right words and the right things. The problem with Judas was not his top deck life. It was his bottom deck life that was not surrendered to the kingdom. And today, I want us to pay attention to this idea of facing our fears, facing ourselves, looking at the monster in front of us and actually acknowledging maybe there's some of that in me. Maybe the problem isn't just that my daughter needs to be with people. Maybe the problem is that sometimes I'm not a very good daddy. Maybe the problem isn't just that society's going to bad places and the morality's all falling apart. Maybe there's a problem with me as well. Maybe there's something going on in me that's contributing to what's going on. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, 
where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There was a dinner given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. That's pretty cool, just throwing that out there. Like, he'd been risen from the dead. Now he's just hanging out, watching the football game, eating a sandwich. Um, Then Mary came in and took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I want you to pay attention to this next section of Judas's top deck life and his bottom deck life. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, top deck, he looked great, who was intending to betray him, bottom deck. Nobody knows that's going on? That's an intention. It's a desire. It's a want that has not been surrendered. And can I just suggest that that desire to betray Jesus is rooted in fear? It's rooted in the fear that Jesus isn't getting what he wants to get done on his own, so I need to pull a trigger of control so that something happens. This is how we live our lives so often. We become fearful that we're not getting what we want, so rather than trusting Jesus' way, we try and coerce and control the outcomes so that we get what we want, and we run ahead of Jesus. And we've got all kinds of ways to talk about that where we can cloak fear in wisdom. Fear, its greatest disguise is always wisdom. Its greatest disguise is always, well, this is just the wise thing for me to do right now. But actually, it's rooted in fear. And if we don't begin to pay attention, Judas did not pay attention to why he wanted to betray Jesus. Paying attention to where we are. So, He said this, which is, this is a great top deck statement, by the way. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He had heard Jesus preach about the poor, right? He knew exactly what was going on, and he said, you know what? Why wasn't this given to the poor? And so he's throwing this out there. Um, But listen to this. Listen to the bottom deck reality. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Fear. Fear caused Judas to say, I don't trust that God is my provider. I don't trust that his economy is abundant. I don't trust that he has enough for me. Because I don't trust him, because I'm afraid of that, I have to steal. Fear caused him to sin. Fear was uh, was unaccompanied. It was not paid attention to. Judas never looked at the monsters of his fear in his life, and because of that, it took him down a terrible road. So I want to give us just three really simple things that I see in Judas that I think we need to pay attention to as well, because the purpose of the kingdom of God is always to overthrow every other kingdom, and it always begins with the kingdom of self. It always starts with the kingdom of self. Self Self-interest is the most damaging thing going on in our country right now. Self-interest leads us to sin, which leads us to fear. And all of these things are rooted in this danger of us pursuing the wrong things. We use language to talk about self-interest that sounds like wisdom when what it really is is fear. And so we've got to pay attention to what's going on in our culture. So here's, here's a couple things that I see going on in Judas. One is there was no honest self-examination of his life. There was no stopping and paying attention and saying, what are my fears? What are they rooted in? What's actually happening here? And when we don't do that, our discipleship can actually just become justification for our own behavior. It's not actually rooting ourselves and paying attention and confronting our demons and looking at ourselves. Self-examination in the presence of Jesus reveals how morally inconsistent I am. It reveals how self-righteous I can become. It reveals how I am not nearly as far along as I would like to be. But if I don't take myself and my brokenness and my woundedness into the presence of Jesus, then I'm doing some kind of learning program rather than actually discipling myself. And so we've got to root ourselves in this process of a thoughtful reflection on our ways. One of the practices we practiced at the beginning of the year when we did the cave road table fire was just at the end of the day, hitting your pillow and reflecting on, Lord, where did my life not look like where you wanted me to be today? 
Where did I miss it today? Where did I blow it today? Where did I make a mistake today? Where did I become angry? Where did I become impatient? Where were you trying to get my attention and I was busy on my phone? Like where was whatever was going on? And we just start to reflect on our ways. In Luke chapter four, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. It says he's led by the spirit into the wilderness and he spends 40 days in self-reflection and he's tempted and every one of his temptations are about him choosing his self-interest versus the kingdom of God. Every temptation is about him choosing his way instead of God's way. Every temptation is rooted in fear of you're not going to get what you want. God is not going to give you what you want unless you pull this lever of control or coercion. And in this, Jesus resists all of the temptations that we don't. Jesus stands strong in the midst of all of those things. He overcomes the temptation of the enemies with the truth of God, and he walks out of the desert, and Scripture says he walks out of the desert, what? Full of the power and the presence of God. We think that we get filled by the Spirit when there's a worship service and we get the Holy Spirit tinglies. Like we think we get filled in the spirit when we get a little sweaty when we're worshiping. We think we get filled by the spirit when the preacher really says something that sticks with me. We get filled by the spirit when we empty ourselves of ourselves and fill ourselves up with him. And if there is not time for honest self-evaluation, self-critique, self-understanding, then we never actually take ourselves to a place where we pay attention. One of the greatest challenges of the American life is that we're never present. We're not present to each other, and we're not present to ourselves, and we're not present to God. Every Sunday, I get a little report on my phone. Do you guys get this? It tells you how much time you've spent on your phone that week. It is the most shame-filled moment of every week for me. I had a friend this week tell me you can get rid of that. I'm trying to figure out how because I I don't need that shame and guilt every week. But we can be so distracted that we're not actually present to where we are. And then what happens is as the Spirit comes upon us in this place of self-examination, we have to pay attention to our fear. We have to pay attention to who was I afraid of this week. We have to pay attention to these moments where we feel like I need to attack here. Why do I need to attack? Uh, I'll just be really vulnerable and honest with you guys. This morning I woke up and there was news of a, a shooting in my hometown, the Oregon district where I used to hang out. My sister owns a house there. Guy walked into a bar with an AK-47 and shot 35 people. And can I tell you, I woke up to that and I woke up to fear. And then I woke up to watching on Facebook as everybody began to pick sides and everybody began to fight. And there was a part of me that wanted to attack in that moment. And then there's a part of me that just wants to avoid and just pretend like there's nothing happening. And I think there's a Jesus way, which is I pay attention to what's going on in my heart and I surrender it to him. And I say, Lord, will you help me to be discerning and wise in how to deal with this? Will you teach me to acknowledge my fears and will you teach me how to speak out in love and not attack? Will you teach me not to bury my head in the sand and pretend like there's nothing to say about this, but will you also teach me to love and grace and honor and to speak the way that you would speak? Because our impulse, how many of y'all have this impulse? Is to click and like and post. And I just don't think that's working for anyone. Are you with me? I don't know that there's anybody who's reading a a social media post that's like, oh, my stance on gun control just shifted because I read this insightful article from some strange news source that isn't even reliable, right? Like that, it just not, it isn't happening, guys. And so what we're doing is we're stirring the rage machine every time we step into these things. And if we don't pay attention, and the rage machine is stoked by the media, by the way, they are just driving our fear. News is not news the way news was when I grew up. It is now called entertainment news. Do you know that? And no matter what your favorite news source is, I'm gonna break it to you, it's not reliable, all of them. All of them are skewed because the thing that they want most is the ratings. Fox News, CNN. 
Even the ones that they say are in the middle, I can't find any middle truth in. And so what happens to me is I wake up every morning with my news sources telling me I need to be afraid. I wake up every day to my social media sources telling me I need to fight. Oh, and I wake up every morning with this anxiety and fear and stress of the world around me. Is anybody with me? Can I suggest that as Christians, there is a better way? There's a better path for us to follow into this, and we do not have to be held captive to the rage machine. We do not have to allow our fears to be stoked, and we don't have to engage in all this nonsense. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. I'm I'm, I'm going to to preach the sermon ahead of time. Here's the second thing that we need to do. We need to be honest and and have moments of self-evaluation. The second thing that we need to do is, is we need to realize that repentance is good news. Repentance wasn't good news for Jesus, and it has to be good news for us. Because here's what happens. If repentance isn't good news to us, then we will hide our fear, we will hide our shame, we will hide our wounds, we will hide our brokenness, and we will never reveal it to one another or to Jesus or even to ourselves. Repentance has to be good news. And repentance isn't just saying, I'm going to turn. That's how we've defined repentance. Repentance is turning. It's a good definition, but it's an incomplete definition because I can turn out of my sheer willpower. Are you with me? Like, I can just say, I'm gonna turn. I don't wanna turn, but I'm gonna turn. Repentance is actually agreeing with God about reality. It's not just turning out of sheer willpower saying, God made me turn. Repentance is actually saying yes and amen to what you want. Yes and amen to your promises for my life. Yes and amen to your purpose for my life. Yes and amen to where you've called me. And so it's not just sheer willpower. I'm gonna turn away even though I don't want to because I really want this thing. It's actually saying to God, your way is better than my way. trust you in this moment and I'm not going to give myself over to my fears or my doubts or my worries or my concerns or or my attacking or my avoiding or all of these things. I'm going to live in the way that you've called me to. I'm going to live in the kingdom. Um, Here's the thing about repentance for for Judas. End of the story. Judas betrays Jesus. Repentance isn't good news for him. Jesus dies His only option is to commit suicide. Peter made a huge mistake also, right? He denied Jesus three times right out in front of the religious leader's home, right at the fire, right there. The rooster crowed. Jesus told him he would do it. Peter said, no, I won't. Jesus said, yeah, you will. Um, But Peter understood that repentance was good news. So when Peter hears Jesus has risen from the dead, he sprints to the tomb. When Peter hears Jesus is at the shore, he jumps out of the boat and swims as fast as he can. Little chubby Peter, I always imagine him chubby, right? Running as fast as he can, all sweaty, running to Jesus because repentance for him was good news. If repentance isn't good news, we hide. We hide our sin, we hide our shame, we hide our fears, and and, and we cloak it in wisdom, Right? Well, my, my fear, it's just wisdom. It's described as discerning. And, and, and here's the thing. If our self actually belongs to Christ, then we have to become self-emptying vessels. Jesus said our life was bought at a price, that we are a living sacrifice who has given him our lives so that he can do what he wants with it. And if that's true, then we need to step out of a life that is about my own self-interest and step into a life that is about the kingdom. We have all been discipled. I hate to tell you this. Every single one of us in this room have been discipled from the day we were born about self-interest. It is the story of our country. You look out for number one. You take what's yours. If you work hard enough, you can get it. It's the American dream that all of us have been discipled in, and it's the way of self-interest, and the way of the kingdom says we empty ourselves of self. Do you know what a lot of our fear is rooted in? It's rooted in scarcity. With our ideology that we've been discipled in, that the greatest thing that we need to do is perceive self-interest, what's happened is everyone around me becomes a competitor for the resources that are scarce. And I have to fight to grab everything. 
I have to battle for my own self-interest. And we've got two political parties that stand on either side of it. And one says the immigrants are going to steal your job and somebody's going to steal your money. And the other says somebody's going to steal your choice and your rights. And everybody fights back and forth and we don't get anywhere. There's no such thing as bipartisanship because no one is pursuing the communal good. Everyone is, 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 is chasing self-interest. I will equally critique both parties, guys. I think there is a mess in both of them. And we're going around in these circles of shame and guilt and anger and rage over and over and over again. And because we don't know how to repent and because we don't know how to honestly evaluate ourselves, we don't understand that it's all rooted in the fear that I'm going to lose something. What is it that you're afraid you're going to lose? What is it that you're afraid? Is it a right? Is it a job? Is it your safety? Is it your security? What is it? And what would it look like for you to surrender that fear to the kingdom and say, Lord, I woke up this morning and I heard about another shooting and I'm afraid. I'm afraid about where our country's going. I'm afraid for my kids going to school. I'm afraid that this happened in my hometown and it hit a little too close to home. I'm afraid that I've actually been to the place where this shooting took place. It's not just a story. I know what that room looks like. I know the crowds that are there on, on Saturday nights. I know this place. So what do I do with it, Lord? Help me discern. Help me understand. Help me be wise and loving and caring. And we surrender all of this stuff. And the last thing that Judas didn't do is Judas never surrendered to love. I don't believe that love is sentimentality. I believe that the love of God is the gravity that holds everything together. And I believe the love of God can transform any community, any system, any political party, any family, any workplace. I believe the love of God is the most powerful object in this world. It's not something sentimental or sappy. It's not an 80s love song. It's not what's love got to do with it or the power of love. Like Tina Turner and Huey Lewis do not get to find what love is for our culture. Jesus does. And so when we think about surrendering to love, I'm not talking about sentimentality. I'm talking about going to the Father and saying, I'm surrendering to your love. Imagine if Judas goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I have to name my fear to you. I'm afraid that there's not enough and so I've been stealing. Here's the money. What am I supposed to do? I, I think his life looks different at the end, don't you? What if Judas goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't understand what you're doing right now because I want you to overthrow the Roman government with power and strength and might. I want you to bum rush the Roman gates. I want you to use strength and war and you're not doing it that way. And so I don't trust you and I don't, I don't trust your way. I want to trust my way. And, and here's a bunch of silver I was given to betray you. His life looks completely different in the end. And so here's the thing for us, as we start talking about love over fear, I just want to name this. It is really easy for us to say, I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of enclosed spaces. Ooh, that gives me the heebie-jeebies even thinking about it, right? Like, I, like, it's really easy for us to name objects that we're afraid of. You know what's really hard for us to name? I'm afraid of losing control. I'm afraid of losing something that I think is more important than you, God. Or even this, how about this? I'm afraid of this people group. I've made enemies of people who are not my enemies. I've told stories about them that aren't the stories that are real. I've not actually moved towards affection or love. I think everything changes when we name it. We name our fear. We say, this is where I'm at. This is what I have. We surrender it to the kingdom, and then we ask the Lord, how do I move towards affection? I think this is the way forward. We're going to be talking about this over the coming weeks. And listen, this is an uncomfortable topic. Can we just name that? 
right? Here's what I hope happens. I hope if you are the greatest Republican in the world and you think Trump is the great, like you have Trump pajamas, right? I hope that you hear a critique from me about that party. And I hope if you are the strongest Democrat in the world and you think you have Hillary Clinton underwear, right? I hope that you hear a critique of her as well, right? Because I am not here to push a political party or a political agenda. I'm not here to stir the rage machine anymore. I'm here to say I believe that the love of God can heal our polarized world. I believe that there's a different way forward, and I want to start a discussion for us as a church which says, how do we get out of our entrenched, polarized, political positions where we argue over issues without treating people as people, and how do we get to a place where we actually surrender to the love of God? And so let's just be real, guys. This is hard. I don't know too many communities that are modeling the way in this. But in our parking lot right now, there are Trump bumper stickers and there are Obama bumper stickers. And we're the kingdom of God. We are the family of God. We are his sons and daughters who gather together every single week, not in the name of a political party, but in the name of Jesus. And so we're going to move into a time of worship. We're going to come to the table. And we come to the table knowing that Christ gave his life for us while we were still sinners. While we were still enemies with him, he moved towards us. He faced the monster and he looked it directly in the eyes and said, I'm coming down to earth. And I'm going to overcome evil with love. And that's the imagination that we have. We're going to have a prayer team come up to the front. And if there's something that you just want to pray about, maybe you're overwhelmed with fear and worry and anxiety right now. And you just need to say, I just need to surrender this to the Lord. You know what I've had to do over and over again is just say to the Lord, I'm not in control of this. You are. So I'm giving it back to you. I don't have to solve this problem today. Because you are God and you are sitting on your throne and you are sovereign and you are good. And I trust you. So maybe we need to come and pray. Maybe we just need to come to the table. Maybe we just need to grab some people around us and pray together and just name, hey, these are some of my fears. Please, this week, guys, do the hard work of paying attention. Do the hard work of paying attention to your fears. Do the hard work of paying attention to when things are are stirring up in you and you want to respond in anger and frustration. Let's talk about it. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would work. We, we just trust you, Lord. We trust that you're sovereign. We trust that you're good. We trust that your kingdom is a kingdom of abundance and not scarcity. And we trust that you will teach us and train us into your way. So I pray that you would, over the coming weeks, with the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us to choose love over fear, to teach us to choose your kingdom over the political kingdoms of our day, and that you will train us to love and to serve and to follow you in all of our lives. So we give our lives to you, Lord. We give our church to you. We give our community to you. And we pray, will you teach us to be healers and not fear mongers? Will you teach us to be lovers and not an angry mob? And will you teach us to look like your son who gave his life for his enemies? It's in your name we pray. Amen.